All right, I'm going to bring our attention together. I never know how to transition out of this time and, and move forward, especially when you're in heated debates. So I have a question for you guys. Uh, who puts up their Christmas tree before Thanksgiving? Raise your hand. Before Thanksgiving, Christmas tree? Wow, very few. After Thanksgiving, raise your hand. How many of you are adamantly against pre-Thanksgiving Christmas tree? The same number of people. <laughs> so uh, I, I got to hear a sermon last night, and the person who was, uh, who was preaching, he mentioned him and his wife put up their tree November 1st. And then I heard at my table up here um, that a couple at this table, I won't say which couple, um, put up their tree November 1st. <laughs> that's, that's a little early, guys. That's a little bitter. That's all right. That's okay. No, that's, that's okay. Um, so uh, part of the reason that I, that I ask, you know, what's different about being an adult uh, than you thought it would be as a kid? Because um, today we're going to talk about, like, misconceptions. Uh, two of them that I had when I was a kid, and I grew up, I realized things were different. The first one was that I was, I was terrified. Uh, I saw all the movies you see kind of a little bit older that, that pictured high school and college. There was, like, community showers and when I was a little kid, I was absolutely terrified of that. I just like, when I was a kid, I thought, all right, when I get to, to school, I'm just not going to ever shower. That's it. That's, that's plain and simple. Done. I don't care how I smell. I'm not going to do it. Um, turned out it was fine. Everything was fine. <laughs> the, second, the second misconception I had when I was a kid, um, not about being an adult, but about uh, maybe grown-up things, I thought it was amazing in movies how somebody with a camera happened to be there when those things happened, it was like, <laughs> it was amazing how that worked out. And it was so, I was so impressed that somebody happened to catch those events as they unfolded. Um, so today we're continuing our series called 500 Neighbors. We're in the second half. Uh, we, we've talked about uh, the Good Samaritan was, was kind of week one in this challenge to, to have 500 uh, acts of hospitality. Oh, little Emma. Uh, 500 acts of hospitality between now and June, uh, the beginning of June. And so far, uh, we've got about 50 logged, and that's just been in a couple of weeks. So uh, as you begin to bless others and share a meal, go to communityreform.org, write those stories down, uh, type them in, um, and they'll be uploaded online. And then you can read like a log of Community Reform Church becoming better neighbors. And it's, a, it's an awesome thing. By the end of it, like you're reading this list, and it's really simple things. But at the end of it, you're like choking up that this one person held the door for the other person just because it was so nice. <laughs> After you get to the bottom of that list, it's just a wonderful thing to see the impact in this community. Uh, and we might not see huge impact right away, uh, but it's really cool to watch community unfold as a, as a community of, of neighbors that are becoming better neighbors. Two weeks ago, we talked about blessing three people each week, and I'm glad that we're all taking those challenges seriously. Last week, we talked about sharing a meal with three people each week, and I have to confess, somebody asked asked me uh, to share a meal with them, but I had to decline. Um, so I'm going to have to make it up, and we'll have to share that meal. So take that seriously. Um, take those, the meals, the challenges seriously. This week, uh, we're going to talk about learning Jesus. Now, uh, if you have any, like, Baptists in your past, um, uh, Baptists really like either alliteration or, like, acronyms. And so this one, uh, bless three people each week, eat with three people each week, listen or sorry, learn Jesus. Next week is listen to the Holy Spirit. And the following week, the last week of the series, is what does it mean to be sent? It spells bells. 
So we're going through these, these five sort of practices of how to become better neighbors. And this is uh, week three, the, the listen portion, uh, sorry, the learn portion of, of learning Jesus. So we have these misconceptions all over the place. And I thought I would just share like a few misconceptions I found online just by like looking them up. These aren't, these aren't actually the first one might be life changing, um, but these aren't like from peer reviewed journals or anything like that. <laughs> uh, but here's number one. Twinkies have a shelf life of only 45 days. Far shorter than the common and somewhat uh, uh, silly myth that Twinkies are edible for decades or longer. They are usually on the store shelf for only about 7 to 10 days. That changed my life right there. Uh, Second one, there is no evidence, and I'm bummed about this, that Vikings had horns on their helmets. Changed my life right there. (laughs) Uh, number three, the Great Wall of China is not the only man-made structure that you can see from, from space. Actually, without magnification, they can't see any. Um, so that, that's another one of those. You need magnification to be able to see it. Uh, all right, number three. And these ones, are, these ones are specifically when you were a kid, uh, you thought about what it was like to be an adult, and you were off. You, were just, you missed it. Uh, number three. Uh, number four. This person said that adults all get along with and like each other. And that only kids have childish fights about nothing. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. Next one. This person said, uh, I really thought quicksand would be more of an issue. <laughs> you learn all about quicksand and how to get out of it and how to avoid it when you're growing up. I really thought quicksand would be more of an issue. All right. Uh, next one. I assumed most adults <laughs> uh, were grown-ups. <laughs> Yeah, that is a good one. All right, next one. I thought all adults knew what they were doing. That's, a little, that, that's, that's garbage. That's not true. Uh, all right, next one. And this was, this was weird because when you're growing up and you've got like elementary school teachers and then you see them outside of school, you assume they lived there. Like that was their life. This person said, I thought teachers were perfect. My kid logic said, how can you teach people if you don't have like all of the answers? When my first grade teacher made a spelling mistake, I was floored. I still remember feeling shocked. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw one of my elementary school teachers. It was at Family Fair here in Zealand. I think it was Mr. Gronevelt from New Groningen at the time. And it was the weirdest thing. I didn't know what to do. Like, do you call him Mr. Gronevelt? Even, you know, and it's been like, it was 10 years later, something like that. Uh, I didn't know his first name. So... <laughs> All right, here's the last one. Uh, because we have all these dreams and aspirations when we're a kid about what it means to grow up. And then you get here and it's way different. Uh, and, you, and you learn things all along the way. And this person said this, and this is kind of like a serious one. This one, um, this one got to me. So this person said, if you worked hard and did well in school, you would be a successful adult. And the older you got, the easier things would get. If you'd known how hard if I had known how hard everything would be all the time, I, I don't know if I would have wanted to continue growing up. When I read that one, all these other ones I was kind of like giggling at and laughing at because I'm an adult, but I'm certainly not grown up. And you can ask my wife that. Um, she can attest to that. And you get to this one and you, you kind of realize, yeah, when you're a kid, you have so many fewer responsibilities. And maybe life isn't always hard. But when you grow up, you realize if you had known how hard things would be, man, you would have maybe had different dreams, aspirations. The reason we're talking about all this uh, is because this is how life had become, this last one, this is how life had become for God's people. 
This was before Christ had come. Uh, Rome had kind of grown into this national superpower. And God's people were praying for, begging for, crying out for a Savior to come. The Savior that was proclaimed in the Old Testament. They were crying out for this Messiah to come and make things right again. Because Israel was not at the top of the political ladder. In fact, Rome was at the top of the political ladder. And not only the Jews, uh, but, but all of the nations around them were experiencing oppression. Uh, persecution. Uh, and, and, and God's people were crying out for not just a Savior, but for a liberator. They wanted like a political powerhouse to come rip down Rome. They wanted this mighty warrior to come in because the things that were happening, uh, they, they, weren't, uh, they weren't right. And so God's people were praying about, man, what did we do wrong to deserve life like this? And so they're praying for a Savior. They're praying for a Messiah. They're, they're praying for the one who was promised to come. They're praying for that person to come. And they're seeing what, everything that's going on in their, in their faith, in the Jewish faith, in their communities. And not only are they being oppressed, but now they're starting to see their Jewish brothers and sisters compromise their faith for safety, for uh, social status, for prosperity. They're compromising the very core of their being. And God's people are seeing this. And they're crying out for the Savior. They were kind of in the season of anticipation, awaiting the Messiah that was to come, and they wanted a warrior. They wanted to be put on top again, not so that they could oppress other nations, and not even necessarily because uh, they wanted to be the best, um, uh, but because they thought that's, that's what was supposed to be, that they were supposed to be this national superpower. Israel was supposed to have a great army. They were supposed to be the, the wealthiest and the strongest, and they, they figured, man, what's going wrong in our people that this bad stuff is happening? And so they had this, this perspective or conception about what the Christ was going to be like. And they prayed for this mighty warrior. And scripture talks about Christ as a mighty warrior. What they didn't know was that Christ is coming again as a mighty warrior to bring everybody to him for the final judgment. But they didn't expect what actually came. Uh, we're going to read uh, Isaiah chapter 53, and we're going to stop along the way. But I wanted to share something that was actually kind of fun about this. Um, so uh, Isaiah uh, is, is one of the, the longer prophets in the Old Testament, um, and it's, it's written probably around 700 B.C., so uh, more than a half a millennium before Christ was born. Uh, and back in like the 30s and 40s, a lot of people were saying, you know what, uh, it's impossible for the life of Christ to match up with all of these things so perfectly just by chance. So it must have been written, this chapter, chapter 53, this must have been written after Christ was born. And then uh, a couple of decades after these sort of accusations were made and took root, um, in Israel, uh, right by the Dead Sea, which is kind of south of the Sea of Galilee, this shepherd boy was taking care of his flock, and one of the sheep got away. And so he was out looking for it, and he found this cave, and he decided to explore a little bit, and he threw a rock down in it, assuming that it would kind of, you know, clink down to the bottom, and he heard it shatter. He just heard something shatter. And he climbs down there with his cousin. They, they pull out this jar of clay. There's all these jars of clay. And they find what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, scroll after scroll after scroll of Old Testament literature dated uh, to first century B.C., a hundred years before Christ. I mean, these were original, a hundred years before Christ. They weren't the original manuscripts from thousands of years ago. Uh, but they were dated uh, at their latest to be 
a hundred years before Christ. And that's just incredible. The entire, almost the entire scroll of Isaiah and a whole bunch of other Old Testament literature was found in these jars that have been preserved uh, for uh, 2,000 years. And this city, that's, there's a little, little village right next to, to where these, these scrolls were found. And some people believe that's the city, that's the little village, the little uh, community that John the Baptist came from. Now, that's, that's, not, that's not like for sure, uh, but, but a lot of people think that he came from this little village of people who were obsessed with Old Testament literature, and that's potentially where John the Baptist came from, um, just south of where a whole bunch of Jesus' ministry kind of happened. So that's a fun fact about Isaiah. Let's dive in uh, and read what Isaiah has to say about the coming Christ. He says this, "'Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?' For he grew up before him like a young plant. He's talking about Jesus. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, God's people are waiting for a warrior. They're waiting for uh, a Messiah to come and overthrow this, super, this, 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 this national superpower. And what they get uh, here is saying that uh, Jesus, not only was he despised and rejected by men, he was a, a man acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows. Not only that, but we don't think about this about Jesus. Isaiah says, Jesus wasn't good looking. This is not the warrior that they thought was coming. So let's, let's keep reading. He was acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One way to say that word, iniquity, is, is, is our gross immorality. If they're waiting for a warrior, a warrior would never be somebody who was killed for our sins. No mighty warrior would ever let that happen to himself. The, the, the Messiah that was to come is nothing like the Messiah that the, the Jews had kind of have made up in their minds as a crying out for God to make things right. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And we see in the Gospels when Jesus was tried, he didn't even offer a counter-argument. By oppression, verse 8 says, and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit. In his mouth, even after he was killed, this, this supposed mighty warrior, they spited him by burying him alongside the wicked, although he was innocent. This is nothing like the warrior God's people were hoping for. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their gross immorality. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul, his life, to death and was numbered with the transgressors, the sinners. Yet he bore the sin of many. It makes intercession for, for the sinners, for the transgressors. This, this doesn't seem like a savior at all. This was a person who was numbered with the sinners, buried with the wicked, who gave his life for the weak uh, and, and, and the unable. This was a savior that the Jewish people were not ready for. Because you look at this and you, and you think, man, if Rome's going to be overthrown, where are the battles? Like, where, where's this mighty warrior? Where's like the pull yourself up from your bootstraps hero that often we talk about in Jesus? Because we believe Jesus is 100% divinity and 100% humanity. And sometimes we focus more on the former and we, and we forget to, 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 to really wrestle with Jesus being fully human. Where's the one who's supposed to make all things right for the Jews Where's the one who's supposed to make our lives easy? Where's the one who's going to make our enemies a footstool? If you look at Jesus' life, by our standards, his life was pitiful. Not just like mediocre. If you look at his life and kind of measure it up to how we measure our lives, you would think he's kind of pitiful. There was nothing very outstanding about most of Jesus' life. And let me tell you why, why I say that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this insignificant little town, as an insignificant little boy during an insignificant time. When he, when he grew up, there were rumors about his mother being pregnant while she was engaged to be married. Not only that, but Jesus probably didn't look like his dad, Joseph, if Joseph were in the picture. Jesus grew up, he went to synagogue and temple faithfully as a, as a, as a growing Jewish man. Um, he wasn't very good looking, he was a carpenter, but didn't have any sort of booming business to speak of. Jesus wasn't well known, until he was, and then he was hated and killed. And then before he was killed, he was, he was held next to a known murderer. And, 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 and they asked the crowds that were kind of in front of him, and they said, hey, who do you want me to let go? Because I can't find anything wrong with Jesus. So do you want me to let Jesus go or Barabbas, who was a known murderer? And the crowd shouted, let Barabbas go. Let's crucify Jesus. Jesus' life, by our standards, was relatively insignificant. No. If you have ever woken up, especially now that the snow has come, uh, now that, that, that days are shorter, the mornings are dark, the evenings are dark, the afternoons are dark, if you've ever woken up and kind of questioned, like, this isn't how I thought life would be. When you're a kid, you have all these dreams and aspirations, and then you get there and you realize, man, this isn't how life, that I thought life was going 
to be my encouragement for us if you're in that place, if you thought this isn't how life was supposed to turn out. The encouragement is to learn Jesus. The encouragement is to, is to look at the life of Jesus and recognize that it's not, uh, there wasn't some uh, astounding, huge, you know, booming business that Jesus ran. He didn't have these huge, wide, uh, widespreading, I mean, he walked with 12 disciples for a number of years, and most of the, the miracles that he performed, their power was actually to come later as the Holy Spirit was sent down. But if you look at Jesus' life, you see, for the most part, it was relatively insignificant. So if you've ever woken up on a day and thought, man, this is not how I thought life would be. I never thought, I, I never dreamed I would, you know, grow up and wrestle with, with crippling depression or anxiety. I never thought that there'd be people in my family who I worry for their health, that I worry about their eternal salvation. I never thought that I would grow up and life would be so hard. If you've ever woken up and felt like that, look at Jesus. I, I, I firmly believe that as Jesus was growing up, he had to come to terms with what it meant to be the Messiah. Like, I don't think when he was six years old, he knew, ah, I'm the second person of the Trinity. I think when he found out he's got to give his life for all, he probably wrestled with, with that. Just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus was killed, he asked God, like, Father, take this cup from me if you can. If not, I'm willing, but please take it from me. So if you've ever woken up and thought, man, I never thought life would be like this. I never thought I'd be so, so darn tired, so, so stretched thin. I think you're in, in good company because I bet there was times in Jesus' life where he wrestled with some of these things. Because he's looking at his nation, his people, the Jewish people, and seeing how far that they've strayed from him. And he's probably heartbroken. He thought, man, how, how could this people get so, so far off? And then he looks at his life, and he's probably, you know, he probably grew up thinking, I want to be a... You know, a carpenter that makes, that makes furniture or houses for a whole bunch. And then he realized he's got this plan for his life. So if you have ever woken up thinking, this is not how I thought life would be. I thought things would be different. I thought I'd be in a better place. I thought this, I thought that. You are in good company because Jesus, what Isaiah says, Jesus was despised. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our sins and crushed for our gross immorality. Instead of a mighty warrior to liberate God's people, they were given a baby, a fragile little baby, an insignificant little boy in a little insignificant cave in a little insignificant town during an insignificant time, overshadowed by a culture of violence, consumerism, and a bigger is better mentality, this worldly kingdom. He was overshadowed by it. So if you've ever wondered what God is doing in your life, know that God often does the incredible out of the unexpected. He often does the incredible out of the insignificant. He often does the incredible out of, the, out of nowhere. He often brings hope where there is no hope. And we look at his life, his relatively insignificant life, the person of Christ. This is the life that God chose to win the victory for all of us. Because bigger is not always better. But we have this boy that was born. And we're in this season of anticipation, waiting to celebrate the birth of Christ. And you think, that little boy grew up to give his life, grew up to be crushed for our sins. Our encouragement is let's get to know that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that Isaiah talks about here, the one that 
isn't very good looking. The one that uh, carries our sorrows and our griefs, the one that walked with sinners and tax collectors, the one that walked with those that nobody else wanted to walk to, the one who gave his life willingly until the very end. Our challenge this week is just get to know Jesus, learn Jesus, uh, read the Gospels, read Isaiah, uh, talk with him. Let's get to know the Jesus of the Bible and let's start looking more and more like him, walking with others towards the Father as Jesus did. Even when you're stretched thin, even when you're wrestling with what in the world it means to be an adult and have a faith, even when you're wrestling with the exhaustion of life, let's learn who Jesus is and let's walk with him. Even when there is no hope. Because Christmas... It reminds us of the hope that came almost 2,000 years ago and the hope that is to come when Jesus comes back. It points us to Easter. And so let's learn about that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, not the one we've made up in our minds, not the one that culture encourages, but the Jesus of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And let's let that Jesus just flow through our veins so that our lives are hidden with him. As we walk with others, in the chaos of life. Let's learn, Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, you are faithful. You were faithful 2,000 years ago to put on flesh and to walk in this world with sinners like us. You are faithful to give your life so that we might have salvation, that we might be able to walk with you till the end of eternity. You are faithful 2,000 years ago and you are faithful today. So God, help us not to, not to add learning Jesus to our list of things to do, but Father, help us to learn Jesus in the midst of everyday life. Help us to know you more. Help us to know the Savior who gave his life for us, who was born 2,000 years ago, as an insignificant little boy. Father, encourage us that you are at work in our lives in seemingly insignificant ways that might just lead to incredible things, things we couldn't dream of, things we couldn't imagine. Help us in our exhaustion, help us in our joys and in our sorrows. Lord, help us to learn your son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's in his name we pray, by the power of your spirit, who's in this room now, for your glory, Father. Amen. Amen. Let's get to our feet and sing together.